It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Unborn babies in America find themselves caught in the middle. They're the victims of a radical political agenda on one side and pure human selfishness on the other. Hey, this is Eric. Poland, between the years of 1939 to 1945, found themselves in a similar position. German selfishness on one side and Soviet politics on the other. The result? 5.6 million Polish men, women, and children exterminated. When a culture swaps out its love for truth for instead the love of a lie, the destruction of all that is good, decent, moral, and lovely is close at hand. I'm an advocate for seeing this world once again regain a love for the truth. Please visit us at ellerslie.com forward slash daily if you would like to join me in that noble pursuit. This is the Monday edition of Daily Thunder. It is, uh, it's been quite a stretch here on the campus. We had a five-week training. And then we saw a whole bunch of them depart, and then we were invaded by alumni, uh, which was really fun. And we still have some lingerers uh, from the alumni summit that are here today, and I just want to say it's great to still have you guys around. It's tough having people go, and I know you guys have felt that uh, at a pretty extreme level, because uh, you're the ones rooming with them, and then they just ditch us. I mean, they just leave. Could you believe that? And, but uh, that's technically what we're here for. We're here to be strengthened so that we can go. We can go into all the world and we can be salt and we can be light. Uh, we can impact and share Jesus. So as hard as it is, it's still a, a wonderful thing uh, to see happen. But let's cherish this time that we still have together. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm headed back into our World War II series, which I I only dipped my toe into it once last week, and then we had some guests along the way. And so we are going to crest into 1945, which is a big, momentous occasion since I just spent a long time in 1944. And 1945 is going to typically just be known for the fact that it's victory year. But there's a lot of dynamic that is taking place politically because up to this point, you have Nazi Germany, which is dominant, and you have Italy, which is sided with, uh, with Hitler and the Nazis. You have uh, the Japanese, which have joined the Axis, and they're beginning to, as the war is progressing, they're beginning to envision how they can divide up the world and carve it up for the Axis powers. And the Allies aren't spending a lot of time thinking about how the world's going to be carved up in their favor. They're just trying to survive and keep what they have. And yet the war is going to shift in its momentum. And what's interesting is the greatest power at the end of the war, like nearing where we're at right now in 1945, isn't America, even though America's powerful. It isn't uh, Great Britain. It's Soviet Russia. It's going to lead to a lot of challenge uh, in the upcoming months and years because one of the key players in this that is attempting to appease Soviet Russia and not anger Soviet Russia, but at the same time steer Soviet Russia is going to die. And I don't want to give any spoilers away of who that is, but it just happens to be known as the President of the United States. 
And so as a result, we're going to see Stalin in this situation becoming bloated with his own self-importance. And he knows, just looking at the map, he knows that he's really the one that turned the tide of the war. And he knows that the Great Britain has been fumbling in Italy trying to make their movements there. And he knows that America has been moving kind of slow. I mean, the Battle of the Bulge really slowed them down. And they're not the ones that are actually going to reach Berlin first. It's going to be Stalin. And so you can just sort of see it's really hard to negotiate when you're not the power player. And so you're going to see the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill attempting their best to steer Stalin. But there's going to be some victims in this process, and that's actually the focus of what I want to talk about, is it's a specific burden. As I study World War II, there's different sides to World War II, because there's all sorts of faces to it. If you were to just look at the, what happens in Germany, it's just like terror and especially if you're Jewish uh, in the Eastern European regions. It's like, it's terror. And when you look to the Eastern Front, which is what it's typically referred to as, which is Stalin versus Hitler, you have evil fighting evil, and it's really unsavory. <laughs> it is unpleasant to study, and I, I've studied it, and it's really hard to even know, which is why I've not included much of it in the World War II series, other than to reflect upon it and to acknowledge that it's happening because one of the most critical moments in all of World War II is a battle called Stalingrad and the victory of the Soviet Russians over Germany. It's like the first German loss and it's a significant tide turner but it is so despicable that war and the brutality of it is so it's like hell has emerged on earth because you have evil fighting evil and they don't care about their people. And the vengeance back and forth is so real. The way that Hitler is going to sponsor his war against Stalin is it's called an extermination war. And he fights it very different than he fights going to the West against Belgium, Netherlands, France, and the Great Britain and America. He fights it different. Isn't that interesting? In other words, when he is fighting to the East against the communists, he basically says, kill them, kill them all. Don't leave anyone alive. Like, that's women, children, and do your worst to them. It's like Satan unbridled as Germany heads east to fight the Soviets. So how do you think the Soviets are going to respond when they begin to get the upper hand and push back? They are going to devastate anything in their way as retaliation. So Welcome to hell. Boom, right there. It's the Eastern Front. It is horrifying that it's actually happened not even that long ago and that these crimes were committed on this earth. So in the very beginning of World War II, there is going to be a, well, let me go back. Before World War II is starting, we're seeing a growing evil known as the Nazis. And Hitler is playing up the fact that he knows the allied forces, especially France and Great Britain, don't want to fight. They don't want to fight, and so they want to appease. Hitler, whatever you want, just sort of take. They don't say that out loud, but that's what they're doing. And so Hitler is not allowed to even have a standing army. Uh, the Germans are not allowed, according to the Versailles Treaty, they're not even allowed to have more than 100,000 standing army. He is going to increase that to millions, and the allies will do nothing to stop him. He's not allowed to have any troops in what's called the Rhineland area, which is the western portion of Germany. He's going to send his troops over there, 
which is right on the borders of Belgium and France and Holland, and the Allies do nothing. And Hitler's smirking to all of his generals who are like, you can't do that. They're going to retaliate. And at that time, Hitler was weak. The Allies could have easily stomped him out. But the Allies aren't going to do anything because they don't want to fight. And that's what Hitler says. They won't fight me. Watch. And then he's going to take Austria, like literally just take an entire nation, and they will do nothing. Then they're going to take the Sudetenland, which most of us have never even heard of. And they do nothing. Then they're going to take Czechoslovakia. He's going to take Czechoslovakia. They're going to do nothing. Then he's going to move into Poland. Poland is actually the beginning of World War II. When Hitler seizes Poland, that's when the Allies are going to say, you know what, I think we need to do something, otherwise he's going to gobble up the whole earth. It's like, are, do you think? Uh, and so it's about time that they do something, but it's all going to start with Poland, and that's going to be important in the message today. This one's called Caught in the Middle. Oh, sorry, my clicker's not on. Poland, 1939 to 1945. These are some dark years. And it's interesting because the levels of mockery about Poles is very, very high. And when I was in elementary school, we used to have Polak jokes. And I had no idea what a Polak was. I thought it was like a cartoonish character. I didn't know that it, they were real people. And, you know, so we always joked about Polaks. And, you know, they were always... The, you know, the, the bad guy in the joke. And it's interesting just sort of looking back to recognize what this people has endured is startling, startling. What they're going to endure in World War II is probably the worst of the worst out of every heinous thing that is going to happen in the world. Most of it's going to happen in Poland. The devastation in Poland in these six years is so extreme that it's breathtaking to the point where I can't even really give a message on it. I'm just going to refer to it because it's too extreme for us to even... How is it edifying would be my question. How is it edifying? It is so extreme. So you're going to see the German swastika there on the map. Uh, It looks like a, a creature, like an animal, like a beast. And I referenced that at the very beginning of this teaching on World War II. And it's going to gobble up Czechoslovakia. It's, in, it's like it's in its mouth. And you're going to see a light blue country known as Poland there. And then you're going to see the Soviet Union, uh, the big red uh, nation. And you're going to recognize that Poland is caught in the middle. This is really not where anyone wants to be located in World War II. Yet Poland is right there. So, oh, I put a star on it. Obviously, I I could have just put the star there. That would have saved me a lot of talking, wouldn't it? So the beginning, September 1939, save the Poles. So the Allies are going to rally to the cause of the Poles, and they are going to risk so much to enter into this war. I mean, once you enter into a war against a power like Hitler, I mean, it's a big, big deal. Why? Because we need to honor our agreement with the Poles. We cannot just sit by idly like we have for these other countries. I mean, this is what Churchill's been saying from the beginning. Hitler, I mean, before Hitler even built his army, Churchill was like, this is not good. I don't like this guy because he was anti-Jewish and Churchill was noticed that from the very beginning. So Churchill's been warning Great Britain about uh, Hitler this whole time. He's like, hey guys, do you see what he's doing? And 
Yet everyone kept overlooking it. Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister through this time, and Neville Chamberlain is going to go down in history, poor guy, as being the appeaser of Hitler. Hitler, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Because Chamberlain did not want war. So this is the beginning. Now let's look at the ending. April 1945, forsake the Poles. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it, that this whole war that starts out with save the Poles is going to end up with, and no one's going to say it out loud, forsake the Poles. However, that's in a sense what's going to happen. Half of Poland is going to be taken under communist rulership. Stalin is going to literally come over them. So not only did they go through these six years, but then they're going to come under a dictator state at the end of the war. And the amount of travesty that is going to take place, not just in these six years, but afterwards, is just so extreme. And this one people group is going to endure it. So I have a a slide up on the screen. This is my history with Poland. Now, I'm not Polish, and I really didn't know anything about Poland. Uh, And it's funny because most of us, especially those of us that are the younger uh, sort, and I'm not really younger, but I'm young enough to actually not be that familiar with Poland, okay? This is like, it's sort of like an, an old person's history that really understands Poland and understands Polak jokes and things like that. That's not really the younger uh, side of things. And yet, I remember this book, it was Leslie's parents that, uh, I don't know if they were overseas uh, visiting Poland, I don't remember how they got it, but uh, they ended up with a trilogy of books by a man named Henryk Sienkiewicz. And it was called With Fire and Sword. Actually, it's just referred to as, by the Polish as the trilogy. And so they were, they were reading it, and they were, we were passing it around the family. And so I read this book. It's, it's, it's like a, I don't know, four to 6,000 uh, page uh, turner. <laughs> it's three different books, but they're all about that thick. And so it's the type of book that most people would not gravitate towards. And it's written in uh, Polish, which again is not a good reason to, for any of us to read it, especially if we don't speak the language. But there was a translation that won the Nobel Prize for literature because it actually captured it literarily in its magnificence. This was the best selling book in Poland for 100 years. And it enunciates something that I think if I could recommend a book, well, you know, I, I would recommend the Bible, but this is one of the most extraordinary pieces of literature I've ever read, and it was a translation. And it was so magnificent that it would be hard for me to even describe it other than just say, just read it. It is masterful. Hendrik Sienkiewicz wrote Quo Vadis, which at one point in time was the best-selling novel in the history of the world. And so uh, this, this book is, is something special, but what it did is it endeared me to the Poles. You cannot read this, because that's what it's about. It's about the history of Poland, which I know sounds extremely boring, right? But it endeared me to the hardiness of this people. You can understand why people hate them. You can understand. See, I understand why people hate the Jews. I do. I understand. I mean, when God chooses a people and sets them apart and gives them favor, it really bothers other people, okay? And so what you see is a very similar thing that's happening where this One nation is going to be under siege. It's surrounded for its entire history by enemies. And they want all want a piece of Poland. And Poland is going to survive generations and generations. 
and then they're going to run into the buzzsaw of World War II. This nation is hardy, and it has been around the block for a long time. Germans hate the Poles. The Russians hate the Poles. <laughs> so you have to recognize what's on the bookends uh, here. The stats on Poland. So I'm just going to give you stats. I, I really don't know how else to go through this. I mean, if I showed you pictures, I don't know how it would be edifying, to be honest with you. The amount of exterminations that are going to take place in Poland during this World War II campaign are just so, it's like monopoly money. It's just too big to comprehend. Auschwitz is in Poland, just to give you an idea, okay? The greatest concentration camps, the Holocaust, the greatest place for the Holocaust was Poland. Why? Well, let me see if I can explain it this way. Germany wants to expand its territory. That's its entire mentality for World War II. Hey, we're congested in this little place known as Germany. We need more territory. We are the hardiest, the brightest, and the best race of people that exist, and we need more territory. Meanwhile, we got these creatures up here in Poland that are taking up good territory that should be ours. That's literally their mentality. It's the highest degree of arrogance. They are going to seize Poland, and then they're going to kill off the population. Why? So that that land can now be theirs. They don't want someone saying, hey, that was my territory. No, they want to say this is our native territory. All the people that used to live here are extinct. That is literally the mindset of Hitler going in to Poland. So he is going to have an extermination campaign to exterminate Polish people. Whoa. Yes. So look at the numbers. The Jews in Poland that were killed, three million Three million just in this one country were killed. That number is so high that most people cannot comprehend. This is massive execution or in mass executions. The Poles and Romani in Poland, 2.6 million of them killed. You do the math on that and you end up with 5.6 million Polish citizens are going to be exterminated in World War II in six years. That's astounding. Like I said, I'm not going to, I don't want to meditate upon that other than to startle our soul into a grievance, into an understanding of the grief of God towards this. Poland is caught in the middle. Germany has a desire. They want expansion. They want liberty. They are, they've been under the Versailles Treaty since 1919. That Versailles Treaty, I, I have to admit, is an overreach, especially on, on the behalf of the French. They are mad at the Germans, and they are going to penalize the Germans in an extreme way in 1919 with the Versailles Treaty. That's after World War I. And that is going to limit and debilitate Germans. And the Germans are going to want retaliation because they've been under this form of suffering, this diminishment, this taxation upon their life and their livelihood for a long time. And so they have, the Germans are a pretty impressive people. Now, I am German, so maybe I, that was a form of bragging. I'm not exactly sure. But I really don't want to be associated with Nazis, okay? So, but they, they are a very fast advancing culture in, in the arts, in the sciences. They are brilliant. And so as a result, even they think of themselves as brilliant. And they look at these other mongrel nations around them that are claiming territory, that the brightest and the best should 
have. The elite should have the privilege of taking that. And if you are not one of the Aryan race, then you should be exterminated. This is the best thing to do. It's survival of the fittest. And if you're the fittest, you should prove that you can survive and let the others die. This is the mentality of the Nazi regime, which is wicked, yes. So Germany has a mode or an a agenda of expansion, and they want freedom and liberty for their people. Break off the shackles and expand our territory. Soviet Russia has a different motive. You see, they are going to be attacked in World War I through Poland, and in World War II through Poland. So they feel like their weakness is Poland, and they don't like that. And so when you see Stalin in World War II, at the end of World War II, with his bloated strength, he is going to negate everything that he has said to Roosevelt and Churchill up to that point. And I don't want Poland. After the war, Poland should have free elections. They should be able to vote their own leader in. Suddenly, Stalin is going to change his mind on all of that. You see, he doesn't want Poland to just be able to do their own elections because he doesn't like Poles and he doesn't trust them. And what's going to happen is there's going to be World War III and there's going to be another German army that's going to sweep right through the weakness of Poland and then attack them again. So it's fear. It's fear that's motivating Stalin. Okay, It is a distaste and a hate that's associated with that fear. He detests the Poles. Hitler detests the Poles. The poor Poles are detested. Are you catching that? Okay, and as a result, no one is fighting for them. The only ones that are fighting for them are Roosevelt and Churchill, but Roosevelt and Churchill are very limited right now. What can they actually do? They can't even break through on the Rhineland or up in Italy. And Stalin can. Stalin is making his way through, and he is going to take this territory. So now Stalin is claiming Poland. Uh-oh. The Yalta Conference, this is where we're at in 1945, February 4th through 11th. Uh, it's in Yalta, Crimea, which at that point in time was part of the Soviet Union, but now it's its own nation. It's right on the Black Sea, a beautiful location, and they're going to have a conference. And I, I've studied this conference, I don't want to say in-depth, but I've studied this conference fairly uh, in-depth. And I didn't, I'm not putting any quotes from it. It's just a political conference, and it actually was not, didn't spike any great fascination in me. But the main issue is this. It's how is Poland going to be handled? And you see, there's, there's what's called a London contingent of the Poles. So the Poles that are stuck under Nazi Germany and then under Soviet Russia, there's a representation of the, Soviet, of, of the Polish government in London. And so that's what Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt are sponsoring. We're looking for these guys. They believe in democracy and, you know, free elections, and that's what we want to sponsor, and we don't trust the communists. And then there's another contingent that Stalin has sponsored in uh, Poland, which are communists. And so when they get to this conference, Stalin's like, I don't trust that London government, and I will not submit to it. What I will allow is a free election for this, uh, this group, these workers, worker party uh, in Poland. And then Churchill and Roosevelt are looking at each other going, yeah, they're communists. No wonder you would accept a free election of them because they're going to manipulate the election. Doesn't this sound like 2020? And so what you have is this very, very unique 
challenge. And like I said, one of the key members of this conference in this agreement is going to die in the upcoming weeks. And so as a result, you're going to see a tremendous fragility, a vulnerability open up in this one nation, which was the whole point of entering the war was to preserve Poland, is actually going to be given over to the dogs. So there's the Yalta conference. We have Churchill on the left, Roosevelt uh, in the center, and Stalin uh, looking very Stalin-esque on the right. Particeps criminis. A uh, good Latin word for a participant in the crime. Now, I am actually wanting us to personalize this because in so many regards, we may not always see it. Like, Poland, if you live in Great Britain, you don't see it. It's, it's pretty far away. And especially during the entire war, you haven't seen any of the crimes going on there. So much of it is going to be uncovered afterwards. The extermination camps and all this. It's not like it's being reported and so as a result, there's a lot that's going on, but you know that evil is happening. And to be honest, it's sort of nice not knowing what's going on. You have to admit. And yet, as long as the allies are responding and they're doing what they can, well, well, they're doing the best they can. Hey, we'll applaud that. But when they lay down their weapons and turn it over to Hitler, well, that wouldn't be good. But they didn't. They stood up and they fought for it but then they're gonna lay down their weapons and give it to Stalin. And so you have this tension inside of me, even as I look at this historically, I see the reasons as I look at Churchill reasoning through it and explaining himself. It's like, yeah, yeah, well, I can see why. I mean, he didn't have a politically, he didn't have a power position to even, what can you say to Stalin? Don't do that. And Stalin could just technically look back and say, you gonna stop me? It's a good point. What can the, I mean, they're, the British have been fighting for their lives throughout World War II. Are they going to be able to stand against the greatest military power in the world at that exact moment and just stare them down? I mean, Churchill's the guy to do it, and Churchill is making very hearty appeals. I want a free election. If you won't recognize the London government, then you at least need to allow us to bring our own emissaries into Poland and figure out the political climate so that we can help make sure this is fair. No, I, we will not accept that, says Stalin. And so you see these tensions building. I understand how it's going to happen. However, when I look at it in hindsight, I feel like the Americans and the British are participants criminus in regards to what's going to happen in Poland. And I, I feel it at a certain level. I, I look at Roosevelt in the negotiations and I see him pacifying Stalin. And I feel like, in a strange sense, the same thing that we are vulnerable to doing in our own culture right now. So look at this quote uh, from Lewis Matthews Sweet. It's a very interesting statement. Now it would seem that to make Satan preeminently the deceiver would make man an innocent victim and thus relax the moral issue. But according to the Bible, man is participus criminus in the process of his own deception. He is deceived only because he ceases to love the truth and comes first to love and then to believe a lie. So he ceases to love the truth and then he actually falls in love with a lie. This really goes to the very bottom of the problem of temptation. Men are not tempted by evil per se, but by a good which can be obtained only by the cost of doing wrong. It's a very interesting statement. 
The whole power of sin, at least in its beginnings, consists in the sway of the fundamental falsehood that any good is really attainable by wrongdoing. And so this idea of saying, it's not that we're tempted by evil. Like if, if we said, hey, go do this evil thing, most of us would say, no, I'm not going to do an evil thing. But if there was something good out there that you could only get by doing an evil thing, the bait is and the temptation is to be willing to do a wrong in order to get that good. Think about Eve. She is going to see that good, that fruit, and it was pleasing to the eyes. And so as a result, she is going to do a wrong to get that good. So the temptation is actually the good, not the evil. It's not that, oh, hey, do a wrong thing, Eve. It's, do you want that good? In order to get it, you have to do something wrong. Are you in? You see, this is the devil's business. It's called temptation. So let's look at this. The six stages of falling in love with a lie. Who would love a lie? That, that's ridiculous. Why would anyone love a lie? And you guys have heard me say this culture has been swayed to forsake truth that, that we live in right now. This culture, the American culture, has been swayed to forsake truth and to love a lie. We actually have fallen in love with that which is untrue. What a bizarre thing. I mean, at so many levels this is true. We have such an infrastructure, an apparatus of what we call knowledge, which is based on the absence of God. How can you have any knowledge when you remove the one who created all things? What a strange way of going after knowledge. God creates it all and then we act like he doesn't exist. How can you actually come to right conclusion? You go to a zoo, and zoos are really fun. Everything in a zoo is attempting to explain how this animal got there in some way, some form, other than to acknowledge its creator. I mean, I don't know if you've run into that. And it, you know, millions of years, and this happened, and then it got a stripe on it. You know, it, it has this whole explanation which is completely absent of reality, and we have fallen in love with a lie. So how does that happen? Six stages of falling in love with a lie. Number one, first we trifle with sin and meditate upon the forbidden. You're going to notice that in your soul, the most fundamental point of gaining strength in your spiritual life is to not take sin lightly, to not trifle with it at any level, to not meditate upon the forbidden, but to literally look away. To not entertain it for a moment. But if you're going to fall in love with a lie, I'll give you the recipe. You do trifle with sin and you meditate upon what you know you shouldn't. This seems harmless, doesn't it? Well, it's a trap, guys. Second, as a result, we cease to love the truth. You see, when you meditate upon that which is forbidden, what you find is that your, the warmth of affection grows towards it. And what happens is you're stealing the warmth from somewhere else. You are losing the warmth for the truth. And so as a result, love grows cold due to distance from the fire. Number three, next we begin to love a lie. Why would we do that? Instead, this good can be gained only by doing that which is wrong, but the ends will justify the means. 
So as a result, you justify why you are willing to do what you know is wrong because what you're getting is actually really good. So many of us that have stumbled into this pattern in our life have recognized that when you start going after a good thing, but justifying bad things along the way, it is, it is a form of imprisonment that is taking place in your soul, but you oftentimes can't see it. Number four, then we are not just fond of the lie, but we now believe the lie. Isn't that a fascinating thing? We love the lie, even though we know it's a lie, because it caters to what we want. Then we begin to believe the lie. Well, who would ever believe a lie? Well, what a strange thing to do. Well, welcome to the world in which we live. Though I'm doing wrong, I'm accomplishing good. Okay, I can't tell you how many politicians have landed in this zone. In other words, they believe that their ideology and where they're taking the government, where they're taking their nation, is actually, it warrants the subtle compromises and the lies and the missteps and the affairs that they have because they need to, they need to still cater to themselves and you know, to maintain their sanity through all this work. And so they will have a thousand compromises along the way that they do not see as compromises. They see as helps to accomplish a greater good. So they actually believe their lie. You ever listen to some of these guys going, that guy just lies for a living. Does he even notice that he's lying? He actually believes that lying is a part of the truth. <laughs> that that's what he's, he's accomplishing something good, so it's just a means to an end. Number five, and consequently, what was once wrong now becomes right. Uh-oh. Uh, we just flipped things on its head. Now, truth is referred to as a lie, and lie is referred to as truth. Uh-oh. Yep. Welcome to our modern day. However, it does have one more step downward, guys. Number six, and ultimately, if this course is not repented of, we will, as a matter of course, become an agent of the lie helping others to believe as we do and do the same. Eve is going to carry that very fruit to someone else to corrupt them. And so what you see is a pattern. You see a pattern that is superintended by Satan himself. It is the corruption of truth and the exaltation of lie. So I'm going to give a very specific illustration today and that is the unborn. The unborn in the wombs of women across this country, and I could say around the world, but let's just specifically say this country, and they are caught in the middle. You see, it's like, you, you would have thought, I mean, Poland's a beautiful country, right? You would think that everyone would just be blessed, and it would be so wonderful to be in Poland. However, if you're between Germany and Soviet Russia, it's not so pleasant. The same thing is true in a culture like this, one of the most dangerous places on earth right now. One of the hardest places to survive is to be conceived in the womb, in the womb of a woman right now. It's one of the most dangerous places on earth. That should be, uh, let me get this straight, that should be one of the safest places on earth. Wouldn't that actually be a place of great safety? Didn't God design it as such? Well, he did. However, something has gone terribly wrong. So if we were to take the German mentality on one side, what is it? 
It's liberty, freedom, and expansion. Hey, this is going to hinder my ability to live my full life. And so as a result, so that I can expand my territory, so that I can have liberty, I am willing to exterminate the Poles. Okay, that's from one side. That's a Nazi mentality right there. And then we have the other side, the Soviets, fear of invasion. What would happen? This, li- this baby would invade my life and my comforts. I can't have that in my life. And so as a result, the Soviets will exterminate those Poles. And what we see is one that is innocent is caught in the middle, the unborn. Listen to this thought again. I I read this earlier. The whole power of sin, at least in its beginnings, consists in the sway of the fundamental falsehood that any good is really attainable by wrongdoing. The Germans say that this is a good end. In other words, this is best for Germany, that we eliminate and exterminate the Poles. And did you know, this is an amazing thought, because there are going to be countless hundreds of thousands, if not millions, I could just say it that way, of Germans that are going to believe the lie. They are going to drink the Kool-Aid, guys. They are going to participate in the extermination of Jews. It's not Hitler that's running the concentration camps. It's Germans, it's Nazis, that are going to believe this lie and be duped into this thinking. Who could ever agree with this? Mass killings, and somehow we're just going to look at it and nod along and go, yes, this is for the best. And yet they're going to genuinely believe it, that it is for the best for Germany that we exterminate 5.6 million Poles. How could anyone think that? So when any idea becomes radicalized, you find Eves that are willing to discard the clear word of God on the matter and reach out and grab what they know is forbidden because they believe that it is for the best. You see, God doesn't want you to know something. The day in which you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened. You will be as God. There's an enticement towards a good. And as a result, there is a slaughter of the innocents. The fatal agreements with death. So let's go through this process that we're going to see in Genesis. God makes clear his commands, his truth. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eats thereof, thou shalt surely die. Typically referred to as the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. And so it's pretty clear, guys. I mean, there isn't a lot of mumbling in the communication. It's like, don't eat from that tree. The day in which you eat of that tree, you will die. Number two, the serpent inquires of your knowledge of the truth. What do you know about truth? What do you understand? This is Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Shall you not eat of every tree of the garden? Number three, the serpent investigates for vulnerabilities. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
And number four, the serpent proposes the temptation. He is going to say, but look at this. Look at this good that you could get if you were willing to ignore what God said. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Wow, that's pretty cool. To be as God, knowing good and evil, having my eyes opened, and look how yummy that fruit looks. Number five, the serpent oversees the failure. Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So we have an issue. It's like a Yalta conference that we are being called to right now. And the culture has the momentum. It has the power. It has the sway. And we are being cowed into silence. You know, many of us have started out like in 1939 saying, we need to stand up against this evil. We need to stand up for the poles, or we need to stand up for the unborn. And yet what happens over time is you get worn down. You start to feel like Stalin is an unstoppable force. So no matter what you do, there's really nothing that can stop this. And so as a result, you forsake the poles. John 10, 9 through 11, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So wherever there's any justification to try and excuse ourselves from this moral mandate that exists, that even though we don't see it and we're like Great Britain on the far side, we don't see what's going on in Poland, we do know that evil is being perpetrated. And right now, because of the nature of our culture with its Nazi mentality and its Stalin-Soviet mentality, it is excusing the butchery of innocent lives. And for us, we represent the truth. We represent that which has been discarded. The culture has grown to love a lie. They call it pro-choice. And yet, we as the Christians, not even for political purposes, this is not a po first a political issue for us, which everyone tries to make it that, which is why we as Christians don't know how to engage with it. It is a deeply spiritual, moral issue. It is an issue that exposes our very character of what moves us to action, what causes us to sit, what causes us to stand. Do we care about what's happening in Poland between 1939 and 1945? Do we care? Or is it none of our business? Because I don't, I don't actually want to get involved in polit politics. That's, I can't tell you how many of us as Christians fall for that. This isn't politics. This isn't about just choosing a side and getting into an argument on it. This is an issue of life and death. I think for each of us, one of the reasons I'm stirred by this meditation 
is because I feel it in myself, the vulnerability to be passive and to not appease in the sense of like, oh, do what you want, but to forget on purpose what's going on, if that makes sense. To just make some noise in my life so I don't hear what's going on. There, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this story. I, I've shared it for years, but I haven't shared it for a while. Of the German church that is congregating. Uh, I don't know if it was a Sunday morning. don't know if it was a Wednesday night. I don't know what the, the deal was, but I know that there was a trainload of Jews that were in cattle cars that were making their way along the road or along the train uh, tracks. And they see a church with its lights on and they hear music. I mean, these, these Christians are worshiping. God. And so they begin to cry out, you know, with screams for help and for intervention. Now, I want us to be in the church for a second. I just want us to be put in there with the pipe organ is playing, it's beautiful, and it, it's just, you know, we need a little encouragement in the midst of this dark time, right? We're Christians in the midst of such an evil hour, and we begin to overhear the screams out there on the train tracks. It's going by. And in our mind, I get it, I get it. What could I do to stop that train? What am I going to do? Run out into the cold, stand on the train tracks and just get mowed down? Do you think they're going to stop because I stand on the train tracks? Do you think the Nazis will stop because some guy gets on the train tracks? One life gone that is standing in the way, all the better. What can I do? What could all of us do? We could all get on the train tracks. <laughs> what good is it? That's exactly what the enemy is whispering. What good is it? So what this German church did to drown out the sound of the screams is they turned up the volume of the pipe organ. And I would say all of us, starting with me, are guilty of this at some level. We don't actually want to hear the screams. We just want to worship God. <laughs> and yet to truly worship God, to truly honor God, there is a different action needed in our soul. And that's what I want to spark in and through this. Is it's not just the unborn that are caught in the middle. There are so many dimensions of life, so many that are being harmed today because Christians are not representing Jesus in the culture. Light is not shining and darkness is moving upon the land. And as a result, it is imperative. Not, and I'm not just looking for guilt in us. I'm looking for a stirring within us as the body of Christ. To say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to take my hand deliberately off the pipe organ volume and I'm going to turn it down, if anything. And I want to hear what you want me to hear and I want to do what you need me to do. One of the most critical seasons in our life, I mean, we have four adopted kids, as you guys know, but why? This is exactly what God stirred inside of us. We have to respond. We have to listen, and we did. Every day, Leslie would spend a certain amount of time, and she would look up stories of what was happening to vulnerable people around the world, and then we would have a time at night where she would read it to me. And it was like an exercise of turning down the pipe organ volume and listening to things we didn't want to hear. And I tell you what, my heart was so grieved, so burdened, and we were like, God, we spent, it was like one or two weeks fasting to know what he wanted us to do because we, we feel so small. What are we supposed to do? 
And we actually felt, uh, I still remember us, I remember exactly where we were. We're in a gas station, very unromantic spot. I'd just gotten in the car after filling up the gas tank and I looked over at Leslie and she said, orphans. I said, yep. All right, what do we do then? And then she said, well, there's, there's an adoption agency right down the road in Berthoud, Colorado. Why don't we just visit it and just ask them if there's anything we can do? You know what's gonna come out of that? Harper. And so these steps forward, even though they're small, of just saying, God, what do you want? Now, in Leslie's and my stand for orphans, we have been harmed greatly to the point where I have found, even as I'm preparing this message, that there is a reticence to do it again, to say, God, what do you want? Do you want me to stand on the train tracks again? I'm willing. But I find myself going, God, could you motivate all of them to stand on the train tracks and I'll cheer them on? That isn't what he wants, is it? God, here I am. And that's what I would ask for all of us, is that each of us would make ourselves vulnerable to doing that which would seem ridiculous in this hour. There are those that are caught in the middle and the enemy is punishing them to get at God because this is right in the center of God's heart. This is where his heart beats and the devil loves to bring it out on those that he knows God cares about. The question is, do we care or are we willing to? to care. 2 Thessalonians 3.13, this is a scripture for Eric Ludy this morning, and you can use it too to the degree that you need. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in standing for the weak. Father, we are vulnerable to turning up that pipe organ volume. But Lord, we want to deliberately set our ears to hear what you hear, to feel what you feel, and to do in these bodies what you would do in your body if you were here right now. We are the body of Christ. Lord Jesus, may we act and not just think, but show us what that is. Show us what it looks like. Employ us, Lord, in your grand work. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.